Volcanoes are arguably one of the most extreme forces to be reckoned with on the face of the planet. The heat and the lava that dissipates from the Earth's core is hot enough to melt entire villages. It can be catastrophic to the human race. But volcanoes do not care. They do not discriminate who will be consumed in their path. But at the same time, they're also responsible for much of our existence. They have a role in the water we drink, in the fossil fuels we consume, and the metals we incorporate into our technology. I have Dr. Clive Oppenheimer with me today, a distinguished volcanologist at the University of Cambridge, who has traveled to some of the most remote places in pursuit of measuring and analyzing these volcanoes. He has conducted extensive research in Antarctica on Mount Erebus, one of only a handful of active lava lakes. He has gone to North Korea, which for anyone in the U.S., uh, they, they know that's a particularly rare feat, um, to assist with research about the Paktu Sun volcano. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. He is also the author of a fascinating and exceptionally well-written book, Mountains of Fire, The Menace, Meaning, and Magic of Volcanoes. And he's here to discuss all of that and more. So, Dr. Oppenheimer, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So, let's just start from the basics here. Why are volcanoes important in the, in the Earth's in general and even, even beyond? Because they can exist on other planets as well, right? That's right. Uh, volcanism is a planetary process. Uh, we see it on other uh, planets and moons in the solar system. And for sure, there are volcanoes on exoplanets in other solar systems. And so, I mean, it, it's part and parcel, uh, I think, of, of what it is to be a, a planetary body, uh, which has got heat inside. And, and a volcano is, is really a, an aperture in the surface of a planet or moon through which heat and uh, and rock, molten rock, or, or even other kinds of fluids. Uh, maybe we could consider uh, geese as a kind of volcano. Uh, this is quite quite commonplace uh, around the solar system. And uh, they are responsible for, for supplying the atmosphere. Uh, the lighter elements um, within a planetary body uh, are spewed out of volcanoes and form on our own Earth, our own planet. They form the oceans and the atmosphere and, and the ice sheets. And, and so in terms of the environmental record of the Earth or, or any planet, really, um, how do you go about, like, how would you go about analyzing a volcano? Because uh, you could do it through gases, you could do it through the rock. Uh, so what's typically, typically the process for that as a, as a science, from a science perspective? There are a, a number of ways that, that you can approach it. I mean, you mentioned one, the rocks, that's the traditional way, is, is to go out with a geological hammer uh, out to the mountain and, and bash off a few chunks of rock and take them back to the lab and analyze them. And, and those rocks, of course, are the products of eruptions, uh, and they'll re reveal clues about the kinds of eruptions that produced them and, and how deep down was the molten rock uh, that, that fueled a volcanic eruption of the past. Um, but there are many other ways, as you say, as well. We can monitor volcanoes. We can um, put like a stethoscope on them um, in the form of seismometers or uh, listening uh, through the gas emissions, measuring those and using them uh, as messengers of the processes going on deep within the Earth. Um, and there are other techniques looking at the changing shape of the ground surface uh, that might respond to the the ascent of molten rock uh, towards the surface that will cause a volcano to bulge out. All, those are all things uh, that we can detect and interpret. 
Um, but then there are completely different ways of studying volcanoes that, that might mean you never even go to a volcano. You, you study it in a model, in a numerical computational model, or I even have colleagues who build analog volcanoes in the laboratory using using syrup and, and different kinds of fluid and adding bubbles and particles and, and trying to understand the, the fluid mechanics of magmatic and volcanic processes. That's really, that's, that's cool. Uh, is there, so when you're going about uh, the modeling side, right, whether it's a mathematical model or an analog model, as you said, um, is the purpose mostly for uh, like to warn people or is it to understand the underlying structure of the volcano or the underlying like dynamical system that, that is going on within the earth or like, what is, I guess, what is like kind of the, the ultimate research aim or I, it, it might not necessarily be one. It might, there might be multiple, uh, goals or, you know, secondary effects, I suppose. I think if I had to distill, you know, a fundamental aim, it, it's really to to visualize what it looks like down there underneath a volcano. Um, it's it's a region that we can't access directly, and so an awful lot of volcanology is is about trying to to image in some way to be able to visualize where are the roots of a volcano, how deep down is the magma, uh, what's it up to, uh, what kind of magma is it, what kind of temperature, and is it going to erupt or not. So, I mean, that's, a, I guess, a fundamental question. And then you could maybe say there are two kinds of volcanologists. Uh, there are volcanologists like myself that are based in universities uh, that are doing um, more, more fundamental research, trying to understand how volcanoes work, why they erupt when they do, why they stop, to, stop erupting when they do, uh, why they have particular kinds of eruptions. Uh, and then there are volcanologists in institutes, um, particularly volcano observatories like the U.S. Geological Survey observatories in Hawaii or the Cascades, um, and also in, in meteorological offices there are volcanologists. And they have that operational role, uh, which is more about monitoring and uh, being able to interpret uh, real-time data in terms of what a volcano might be uh, up to. And that, of course, feeds into, into civil protection and, and hazard assessment. Sure. So you've had uh, quite, you know, quite a distinguished career so far. Uh, what what kind of got you into this field? Like, was it something that you've always been interested in as a kid? And just, you know, we all had, you know, we all know Krakatoa and like read about it in the comic books and everything. But um, was it always a lifelong passion, or is it something that uh, you kind of found you had to weave your way through your studies and eventually found interest in? Yeah, no, I, I did see that movie Krakatoa East of Java when I was a kid. It was on TV. <laughs> but I think I think it goes back even a little bit earlier than that, maybe when I was around 10, uh, visiting the Geological Museum in, in London, the city where I grew up in, in the UK. And I just I just loved the the aesthetics of these you know, wonderful minerals, rocks, fossils. Uh, and that, I think, is what seeded a a passion for geology, which I studied at university. And I particularly um, appreciated the geology that's happening now. So in fact, I, I thought I might go into seismology uh, for for PhD studies. Um, but I'd, I'd traveled in Indonesia before going up to university. I'd seen a lot of volcanoes. I traveled with a book by a, a guy called Peter Francis um, 
called Volcanoes. And uh, I'm looking in this book and uh, recognizing some of the, the features that I'm seeing right in front of my eyes. And uh, I didn't know then that Peter Francis would end up being my, my PhD, my graduate advisor uh, a few years later. And so I went into volcanology at that point. Um, and it was uh, a, a PhD looking at how to monitor volcanoes from space. And so those were two topics that were new to me. Volcanology, I knew very little about. Um, remote sensing, imaging from Earth's orbit, and, and uh, particularly I, I was trying to measure temperatures of volcanoes for using satellite data. That was also new to me. And that, that's what really propelled me then into a career in volcanology. Sure. Um... Yeah, remote sensing is a really interesting area because it has a wide range of applications. And I guess it's not necessarily satellites, right? I mean, that's the predominant source of remote sensing data, I guess. But um, I, there, you actually made a, a documentary with Werner Herzog uh, called Into the Inferno. And there's a part of the, of the documentary where this woman has this device that essentially is bouncing, I guess it's a a laser or some kind of light source and seeing how quickly it reflects back off the volcano. And you can pretty much use that to figure out if the, if the bulge of the volcano is expanding or not, right? That, that would also be considered remote sensing or, or not really? Yes. I think, uh, I mean, a very broad definition of remote sensing would be gathering information about an object without being in direct contact with it. Uh, so, you know, sticking a thermometer in, in my mouth to measure my uh, <laughs> temperature, that wouldn't be remote sensing. Uh, but having a device maybe to, to record someone's temperature from their forehead from a little distance, that's, that's a kind of remote sensing. And uh, the technique that you referred to is um, electronic distance measurement. And it's fairly standard surveying kit that you'll see sometimes people in, in uh um, engineers on the road uh, surveying will have a similar system, um, a little telescope, and it's firing off a laser pulse and there's a mirror and uh, the, the travel time of the pulses of light are being measured. Uh, and that gives the, the range, the distance between the mirror and the instrument. Uh, and the same technique is used on volcanoes. You can put a little uh, corner cube that will reflect the light, uh, position it in, in a fixed spot on the, on the volcano up, up towards the summit and uh, ping it with a laser light once a day, once a week as needed, and measure that distance. And if that distance gets shorter over time, uh, then it means, uh, well, it either means that you're moving nearer the volcano, or more likely the volcano is moving a bit nearer you by bulging out because molten rock is moving up towards the surface. That's hilarious. I, I see those people on the side during construction, and I always wonder what they're doing, so now I know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting, it was a really interesting part of the documentary. Um, and I'm, I'm happy you explained that because I think you also have uh, a pat some patented device that works similarly. Um, yeah, maybe explain that device because um, I'm not entirely sure how that differs from um, the sensing, the remote sensing that you're just des describing. After my PhD, which was, was using satellites looking down at the earth, I, I actually got more in involved in using ground-based uh, instruments, still remote sensing instruments to, to measure uh, volcanic gas emissions. And the device you're referring to uh, is an ultraviolet spectrometer. So th these were very compact, uh, relatively cheap devices that were being mass produced. And um, it, the, the ultraviolet light is, is every, everywhere in the daytime sky. 
uh, it's it's um, the light from the sun that's scattered by the, the air molecules. And um, uh, there there is a one particular gas that streams out of volcanoes, sulfur dioxide. Uh, it's, it's an acidic gas. It'll tear your eyes up. Um, it's it, it's uh, not particularly pleasant to breathe. Um, and uh, it's it's an important gas to measure. It's it's again telling us about the activity of a volcano. And once it's emitted into the atmosphere, it drifts with with the wind, uh, and uh, sulfur dioxide absorbs uh, certain wavelengths of ultraviolet light. And so we would hook up one of these little spectrometers to a telescope, point it up at the sky, and typically drive backwards and forwards on the roads. Um, maybe a few miles downwind of the, the volcano summit. And uh, we would be able to measure all of the sulfur dioxide coming out, out of the volcano and, and convert that into how many tons per day of this gas were coming out of the volcano. And, it, and it's another measurement. If you measure, uh, repeat that over time, you do it daily, weekly, monthly, again, depending on the activity of your volcano, you build up a time series and you can see other trends. Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? And that's a very important diagnostic of uh, of what a volcano is is up to. And so, I guess on that note, um, the time series of data that you would be looking at would be for like the immediate future to see if something's going to happen, right? Like, I guess in the relative time span of the volcano, I mean that's a that's a dot on the map, right? So, like that kind of information would be used for more like prognostic, like you know, what do we expect to happen? For the safety of the people, I guess is that is that the idea? Yes. Uh, so again, because I'm I'm based in in a university, I I don't have that twenty four seven operational responsibility. Um, but I've worked very closely with colleagues who do, uh, and uh, we've we've designed approaches to to making these measurements that are now quite mainstream around the world in different volcano observatories in Hawaii, for example. Uh, and so there, yes, you're collecting data. And um, uh, I, when I've visited observatories, there might be a, a weekly meeting where uh, everyone measuring in different ways gathers together and says, this is what the seismology is showing. This is what the, the geodesy measuring these changing shape of the ground. This is what that signals are, are being measured. Uh, here are the gas measurements. And what do we think this means? Uh, and maybe then you're th you, you, you also evaluate what might happen over the next week, over the next month, over the next six months. Um, my kind of work tends to be more uh, what I would call campaign measurements. Um, I've worked on, on active volcanoes where I can make very detailed observations um, of the gas emissions in particular, uh, but also thermal um, imaging, and uh, look at very dynamic, changing volcanic behavior, for example, at lava lakes. Um, and, and get these very, very detailed data. And, th and there I'm really trying to understand more how, how is this volcano working at a more fundamental level. So I'm not trying to forecast the activity, but really to uh, understand the process. Okay. More, more of the inference rather than the prediction, I suppose. Speaking of lava lakes, um, you, you mentioned that the device was used to capture, uh, you said it was sulfur dioxide? That's right. So in... Mount Erebus, the main uh, gas that was emitted was nitrogen dioxide, I believe, right? Is that no, actually, so uh, nitrogen dioxide is an interesting one. It, it doesn't really come directly from volcanoes, but because uh, volcanoes are very, very hot uh, sometimes with lava at the surface, 
they can fix atmospheric nitrogen, uh, which is the most abundant molecule in the in air. Uh, they they can basically cook it and turn it into uh, nitrogen um, oxides. So we we have measured that spectroscopically at volcanoes, um, but it's it's the air nitrogen that's that's being oxidized. Um, the most abundant gases that come out of Mount Erebus in Antarctica are, are water and carbon dioxide. And that's true of, of pretty much any volcano on the planet. The main two gas emissions uh, are water and CO2. Yeah. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people don't realize. It's like, I guess humans wouldn't really be here if it wasn't for volcanoes because they are directly responsible for the water we drink in many ways, right? Yeah, I, you know we're we're we've got about the same composition actually. If you work down, you know the the elemental proportions of the human body uh, and the gases that come out of volcanoes, they're they're very very similar, uh, surprisingly similar. We've got a bit more nitrogen, maybe a bit more phosphorus, uh, and the volcano's got a little bit more sulfur. But uh, yeah, I mean we're we're made up of the uh, the 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 chemicals that, that have been emitted from volcanoes over the eons, they've been fixed by plants and, and so on. Um, but we're, we're part of this great geochemical cycle that, that sees elements coming out of volcanoes, being part of, of uh, the carbon cycle, being part of ecosystems, and then ultimately uh, those, those uh, chemicals go back into the inner earth uh, at the edge of of um, places like the the Pacific uh, tectonic plate, where where the uh, the Earth's crust is sinking back into the deep interior, and it's it's returning some of those those uh, elements uh, back to the inner Earth, and they'll come out again eons later out out of volcanoes. Cool. So one more, um, I guess, science question before we kind of move to more of the adventure aspect of what you do, but. I have a, obviously a very cursory understanding, but um, the way that vol- when, when volcanoes erupt, the, the lava flows harden, and that's eventually how you get these like rock layers, um, as we kind of touched on in the beginning. I know most of your research has to do with the gases and, and the, the not rock aspects, um, but maybe just for anyone who's wondering, just so they kind of have a comprehensive understanding, like how would you go about analyzing... I don't know if it's sedimentary rock or, or whatever the layers may be. If you were to drill and you could essentially find a, a time series of the Earth's history as well using those layers of um, molten rock. I might be butchering the vocabulary, but pretty much like as it hardens and then erupts again, it hardens again. You create all these layers and that's kind of how you can determine a record of the Earth's history. Right. Something to that extent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. The, the um I guess you know the, the the most basic principle of of geology is is that uh, the, the rocks that form at the Earth's surface, whether that's um, sediments in in the oceans or whether it's uh, ash and lava from a volcano, that they they kind of stack up over time. Uh, and so, as you say, if you slice through that or drill through it, then you see revealed what we call the stratigraphy, the layers um, that go back in time. That can get turned upside down, of course, by earthquakes and tectonic activity but that, that's a sort of basic um, a, a basic principle for us and then the term fossil fuels is because of the fossils that are buried in that those rock layers right that's like the idea like once they fossilize those gases escape into the rocks but they don't escape into the surface that's why you can drill down and 
obtain it. Is that am I sort of correct on that or? So, so fossil fuels are are the product of of biology uh, from from you know geological eons ago, uh, uh, organic matter that that decayed that was buried by sediments, um, and so this is why you know many many uh, um, hydrocarbons are recovered by drilling um, beneath the sea, uh, drilling in, into the rock uh, to reach a, a level where where they've accumulated, and and basically they've this organic residue uh, is is a fossil it's it's fossil material that that has has rotted decayed and matured um usually because of uh, some heat uh, deeper down um in the earth's crust uh, and it it makes it makes oil it makes gas uh, and if that can get trapped um geologically uh, by by a less permeable layer of rock uh, that's what makes uh, an oil or gas reservoir that can be tapped um, by by drilling down. Uh, so so that that's that's why they're called fossil fuels because basically it's uh, it's it's the remains of things that were living um, uh, millions of years ago. Sure. Okay. Great. Now, shifting gears a little bit to the adventure itself of being a researcher as a volcanologist. One of the coolest things, in my opinion, is that you get to go to like literally some of the most remote places on Earth. I, I had this fascination with Antarctica. I think it's such a, a wild place. It's the only place on Earth that's not owned by anyone. It's all kind of communally agreed that it's like a place for research and like you, we're not there to destroy it and all that. So you did a lot of work on Mount Erebus um, with regard to the, the, the lava lake that's contained within there. So um, maybe just give a little bit about like why you decided to go down to Antarctica, what specifically about Mount Erebus is appealing from a research standpoint. Um, and like, what was that experience of like going there for the first time? I first heard about Erebus uh, on day one of my PhD studies uh, many, many years ago at the Open University in, in England. Uh, there was a pile of computer tapes on my desk and a note from my advisor saying, uh, uh, these are from a volcano called Erebus. It's in Antarctica. Uh, take a look at them. They're, they're thermal infrared images, uh, and see if you can, you know, see this the lava lake that this volcano has. Uh, and so that was my my um, uh, sort of gateway drug, if you like, to to getting down to to the ice uh, down near the South Pole. Um, in these images, the the pixels were were one kilometer by one kilometer, so nearly a mile squared on the ground. So you couldn't make out a lot of detail, um, but sure enough, this lava lake lit up would light up one of the pixels um, because it was so intense. Uh, so I knew about Erebus, and um, uh, some years later, I, I met uh, a character, a geochemist called Phil Kyle, uh, based at New Mexico Tech, uh, and he he said, oh, I've been working on Erebus for for uh, uh, for many years now. You should come down with us some sometime. And so uh, I was extremely excited at that prospect. But it was quite a few more years before he he got in touch and said, um, I, "I think we can get you on the team this year." And it was because uh, he'd read about um, the 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 work that we'd done with these little tiny ultraviolet spectrometers. Uh, he'd been doing the same kind of measurements, but with some really hefty um, pretty antiquated equipment. And so uh, he, he was excited by uh, you know, what we were able to do with these very, very cheap instruments. 
And so I went down there and, and what was it like? I mean, you, you've, so this was with the US Antarctic program. Uh, we'd fly down to, we'd fly into Christchurch, New Zealand. That's the jumping off point to McMurdo Station, uh, a US um, base in Antarctica on Ross Island, uh, due south of New Zealand. Uh, the largest scientific base in Antarctica, about a thousand people in summer. So you show up and uh, it, you know, it's already pretty amazing, but you're at sea level. Um, there's lots and lots of people there. There's a big galley. There's cargo moving all around. There's scientists. And um, it doesn't prepare you for the real Antarctica, which you experience the, the, the second you step out of the helicopter uh, up on the flanks of the volcano. So now we're going up uh, 10,000 feet. Uh, and now you really experience the cold minus well we're getting we're getting to the point where celsius uh, which i use in fahrenheit converge at minus 40 i discovered that working in antarctica uh, so we're approaching those kinds of temperatures and uh, the air is incredibly dry and you've got all this gear on um you know gear to keep you warm and and you step out of the helicopter and you feel a bit like you've stepped out onto the surface of mars maybe uh, it's it's so alien uh, the environment and and the the uh, landscapes and skyscapes are just phenomenal at that altitude. Uh, you look out across um, the the uh, the Ross Sea, which has these uh, icebergs breaking up and floating around in the distance of the Trans Antarctic Mountains um, that themselves go up uh, twelve thirteen thousand feet, and you see glaciers streaming off them and, and the light gleaming off those. Uh, so it's it's really very, very spectacular. And uh, we would then spend about a month in, in a, a small field camp, uh, maybe 10 of us, uh, just um, a mile, mile and a half from the, the summit crater of Erebus, uh, 12,500 meters up, sorry, 12,500 feet up. And um, we would... Uh, you know, we had we had a very comfortable accommodation there. We had a couple of huts so we could cook, eat, hang out. Um, we had a workshop where we could fix everything that's broken on the way on the journey up there and uh, sit out the bad weather. And when we had good weather, uh, 24-hour daylight um, this time of year, November, December. And so you can just work and work and work. And uh, on, a, on a windless day, just beautiful. Um, sunshine and um you don't even feel too cold you know if if if, if the wind is down uh, and and i'd be up at the edge of the crater may, maybe for several hours setting equipment up making observations collecting these data uh, so yeah it was it was the time of my life absolutely uh, on on up on that mountain that's fantastic um what's what was the sensation like going from this extreme cold there's an extreme hot of being like right at the, at the crater's surface or edge, I guess. Was that like, did you have to, I'm assuming you had to take some stuff off or you would overheat maybe, or do you just have like hydration packs or something? Uh, no. So, I mean, it's not so hot. Uh, it's still, you're, you're about, uh, I don't know, a thousand foot away from the, uh, from the lava surface itself. So, I mean, occasionally if the, if the gases came towards me, I, I would, I would feel that's a bit warmer than, than outside but but otherwise it's you know it's it's minus 30 uh or so um temper air temperature so you know you i mean you you overheat uh, uh climbing up um up to the the cone so so we could we could take uh snow snow machines 
snowmobiles up to um, the foot of a, a st quite steep cone. Uh, but we'd have to trudge up that the last um, half a mile up to the edge of the crater and, you know, often carrying um, automotive batteries and, and all the equipment you, you you're getting you are getting overheated because you've got this also this sort of uh, cold weather gear on and uh, right. yeah regulating your temperature was was not always easy sure yeah and when you're at the top like what is what is it like to see i mean you're probably one of very few people on earth who have ever peered down and looked inside of a lava lake so is it I'm assuming that that has to be just a fascinating experience, like an otherworldly kind of vision to see. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's very, very um, enthralling and mesmerizing. And uh, I mean, I have to take my eyes off it when I'm, I'm kind of there professionally and I'm there to collect some data uh, and setting the equipment up. So I'm almost completely oblivious in a way of, of what's going on on the volcano until everything's up and running. I've got the computer, I've hit record, I'm collecting data, and now I've got time to kind of lean over the edge and, and look down there. And, and yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, absolutely, um, it's absolutely mesmerizing because what you see with a lava lake is, is perpetual motion. Uh, you, you see uh, these red hot cracks that, that fish are the surface and the lava, the lava is welling up into this lake and then spreading sideways and sinking down. Um, and the lava at the surface cools very, very rapidly. So you get this black, dark crust um, and then these red hot fissures where the lava is coming up. And that's just moving around all the time. Uh, and and uh, there are different kinds of lavas. There are some like the one at Erebus, which is much more sticky, much more viscous. Um, so uh, it's less mobile and others like Hawaii. Uh, Kilauea volcano where it's extremely fluid uh, and then you see these beautiful zigzag red orange um, incandescent fish fissures uh, and, and moving all the time reconfiguring uh, sometimes a fire fountain for example in Hawaii you, you'll get this this activity will will um, start playing on the lake surface for, for half an hour or so so, uh, yeah, it's and, and you know, you, you can feel the heat. Certainly in Hawaii, I can really feel the heat uh, on my face when I'm looking at the lava lake there. And um, you've got a gas mask on sometimes. But you take that off and you're smelling the, the gas molecules that just came out from the earth. Uh, and uh, it's yeah, it's a very, very multisensory experience and very, very gripping for sure, especially especially at night. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, I'm sure the the documentary has some wild footage, um, I guess, of the I, I forgot their names, but I think it was back in the 70s or 80s. And it was like this old footage of them. It had it, they had to be within 500 feet of like this huge lava flow that was just coming out. And it just makes you think like like you said, it's like I, this does not seem like it's on Earth, like it's somewhere, you know, just a breathtaking display of the earth's power you know um i'm sure that was that was pretty wild so then that was antarctica so take us through what for uh for most of us americans seems to be totally also out of this world in north korea um i know there's obviously a lot more political risk at stake for people here i don't know if it's the same in england or not but how did that opportunity come to be because that when I when I read that you had done research in over there to help them with 
Um, I probably am pronouncing the volcano wrong, but Pacto San, the Pacto San volcano. Um, so, yeah, how did that? How did that come to be? Because that's fascinating to me. I got invited there through a friend of mine, a journalist, uh, who then worked for the AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, I'd known him in Cambridge when he was based uh, in, in an office in, in the city where I live, Old Cambridge. And uh, But he was then in Beijing uh, uh, reporting out there, and he'd, he'd made uh, one or two visits to Pyongyang uh, covering science stories in North Korea. And uh, he got in touch with me out of the blue um, back in 2011 and said uh, he'd got wind of uh, some of the geologists and geophysicists in, in North Korea, uh, wanted to reach out to um, volcano experts in the international community to get some advice on their volcano, uh, which is called Pektusan, as you say it. And, uh, uh, and uh, Rich, Rich Stone, his name, uh, Rich said, um, you know, could you maybe go in a couple of months? And uh, I said, well, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And I, I got in touch with a, a friend of mine who's a seismologist, and, and the two of us went out there. Uh, I knew a bit about Pectusan because it, it was uh, responsible for one of the biggest volcanic eruptions of the last 2000 years. Uh, so a little bit had, had been written about this eruption. That, that was really that, that was the sum total of my knowledge. Uh, the volcano is right on the border with China, so the, the frontier goes through the middle of the crater. Uh, this eruption was around a thousand years ago, and it left a big hole in the ground filled by a beautiful lake. And um, so uh, we we went out there. We arrived in Pyongyang, and uh, what I was completely unprepared for is is the uh, the significance, the symbolism of this volcano to the Korean people. Actually, not just the North Koreans, the South Koreans as well. It's it's their ancestral mountain, so they've got these these ancestral uh, connections with with the volcano, with the crater. So what I was completely unprepared for is is the the symbolism of this if this volcano. It's it's um, the ancestral mountain for for the Korean people. Um, they've got a founder myth that that's uh, centered on the crater. Uh, and for North Koreans, it's the sacred mountain of the revolution, their, their struggle against uh, Japanese occupation. And uh, you see the iconography of the volcano everywhere in Pyongyang. You see murals of it um, in the subway. You see the, the, the statues of the, the founder um, standing in front of, of a huge mosaic of, of this crate, beautiful crater. And so uh, that that kind of blew me away. I, I hadn't been anticipating that. And and we spent um, some days up on the volcano, and we were speaking with our our colleagues uh, from Pyongyang, the the geoscientists. And they said, we you know we really want to monitor this volcano better. We want to understand when did this huge eruption happen around a thousand years ago. There was no historical date on it. Uh, we'd like to to understand more um, about where where there might be magma beneath the volcano today. And so we went away. We we drew up um, a, a project proposal, and we got support from uh, from the AAAS, from um, uh, ver various uh, institutions in in uh, the U.S. and in in London, support of uh, the Royal Society of London. Uh, and other organizations and NGOs, and we were able to build this this collaboration that lasts to this day. Oh wow, awesome! And um, was your perception of the scientists there like? Did they seem 
Because North Korea in particular, I know there's a lot of, um, I think they call them defactors or people who have like escaped because of like very horrific conditions there. Um, did, did it seem like they were studying science for the sake of studying science or did it seem like they kind of had like an underlying agenda or this could very well just be my American bias, I suppose. But it's, that's the one thing that comes to my mind. It's like, well, what are the, what are the actual people like? Cause I know a lot of them have, they, they live through these horrible conditions. Um, but there are, you know, they do live life. They have jobs. They have, they go through life the same way. So I'm just curious, like if you noticed that the science, the quality of the science that they were trying to undertake there was comparable to the, the level of science that you were trying to conduct on your own fundamentals. If that makes sense. Yeah. I th- I, um, I'd say yes and no. I think yes, in insofar as they have a great thirst for knowledge, as, as scientists do, you know, and anywhere that you find them, they, they're curious. They want to uh, pull things apart and put them back together to understand them. They want to uh, understand how the the earth works, uh, and they're they're very well trained um, in in the, for example, the the kind of foundations of geophysics, the the mathematical side of it. They're you know, way better than I am on seismology for sure. Uh, what they lack is because they don't go to the international conferences. They, they, uh, by and large, um, their their Eng- English is um, comprehension is is not great. Uh, they don't get the journals. Um, I mean, I've I've become a volcanologist by having collaborations around the world. I've done field work on volcanoes in Italy, in the U.S., in in South America, many places in in collaboration with with people in institutes. They 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 miss all of that, so it means they're a very long way from the cutting edge of a discipline like volcanology, and especially because volcanology is not just about the science; it's about uh, how do you interface that with um, with uh, risk management, with with uh, the communities that that might be threatened by volcanic activity. Uh, that's an area that they've got very little experience of, and their, their volcano hasn't really done anything for for many centuries. So it's it's not something that they've had kind of expertise of a of an active volcano. Uh, so you know there there were um, uh, there were many communication barriers. You know, language being one of them. But an, a, another just very straightforward thing is I I I can't email uh, our scientific colleagues in Pyongyang. That has that exchange. Uh, has to go through various intermediaries. Um, when we were writing a paper, it was quite complicated because we we had to send uh, across a manuscript, uh, and uh, sometimes it would have been photographed um, on a mobile phone with some uh, handwriting on it, and that would come back to us as a JPEG. You know, and, you know things things that you take for granted in communications are not are not straightforward. Um, and I mean, the other thing I would say is, I, you know, clearly. Uh, I, I had, I, I had options of what I did in in my career. Uh, I, I think I think in in North Korea it's it's much more you know rigid. Uh, if you if you study geology, you know you will um, it will be designated what what position you go into. So so it, it's a very different system, of course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy experience, um, but it's you know. Like you, like you said, it's the, the, the cultural differences. Um, and speaking of cultural differences, that's something that you touched on in your book, In the Mountains of Fire. 
And uh, and in the documentary, not specific to North Korea, but in general, like the, the cultural significance of volcanoes. Um, I didn't know that about North Korea. That's actually really interesting. But uh, also in terms of just cultures around the world, like what what have you... For example, I don't know if many people know, but the word volcano comes from Vulcan, which was the Roman god of fire. That was something I didn't know. I read in the book. Um, but you, what makes your book very easy to read for me is it, it kind of interweaves your research experience and your background and how you got involved with all this with like the cultural and the historical impacts of volcanoes. So what is like the common thread among all cultures that you've studied so far like that because it seems like there's almost this like godlike appreciation for volcanoes because of their raw power and everything. So, um, yeah, just maybe like touch on that. Like what, what have you kind of observed in, in the different areas of the world? Sure. Uh, whereabouts do you live? I'm in, uh, the U S I'm in, um, Charlotte, North Carolina at the moment. Yeah. So not, not too near any, uh, smoking volcanic craters, but I mean, imagine that, you know, imagine that there was one just a mile out, at, you know, away from your house and, and, and you looked out of the window at night and you saw the glow uh, from, from the top of the mountain. Or, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, there'd be some acid rain on, on your garden uh, because of the way the wind was blowing. Uh, I mean, that, that's something that I've learned going, going to volcanoes um, around the world and, and interacting with the communities that live on them. You know, if you've got a volcano on your doorstep, it's not something that you you fail to notice. I mean, they're they're, they're awesome, um, and and seeing that glow at night, I mean, it would become very it's it's unthinkable that you wouldn't build that into your way of seeing the world. Your 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 whole cosmology, uh, you know, could not ignore this this uh, volatile neighbor that you've got. Uh, and so I think you know whether, whether you're on um, on the Big Island of Hawaii, whether you're in uh, in um, Naples in Italy next to Vesuvius, or whether you're in Tokyo near Fujisan, I mean pe- people have have embedded the volcanoes in into their cultures, and uh, and you know there there are many stories, many mythologies around around volcanoes that sometimes tell us about their past eruptions, maybe even thousands of years ago. Um, these events can be can be preserved in oral traditions uh, and and stories. So I, I think I think it's actually no surprise that they're you know how how richly they've informed um, the cultures of, of many 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 peoples around the world. And you know more more than ten percent of the world's population lives within uh, let's say spitting distance of a of a volcano. It is wild. So I guess of the active volcanoes you mentioned Vesuvius and Hawaii are those um like I guess what makes an active volcano different than a dormant volcano is it just the presence of lava or is it um yeah I I don't really know actually (laughs) I don't think I do either it's it's uh you know when when do you say a volcano is extinct how do you know uh I, I mean we we just have a kind of practical working definition uh, in my field. Um, you know, a, a volcano that's done something in the last 10,000 years or so, uh, we we refer to that as an active volcano. It doesn't mean it's erupting right now. Uh, so we often use the term active to mean potentially active, could come back to life again. Uh, a dormant volcano, I think dormant is a perfectly uh, reasonable word to use to describe a volcano that is sleeping. 
that is not doing anything at the moment, but that might come back to life in future. I, I think that's a helpful bit of terminology. Um, the confusion arises because an active volcano, that, that, that sort of sounds like a volcano is actually doing something uh, that is erupting. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's the terminology is a little a little bit uh, it's more confusing than it needs to be. But basically, if you know, if the volcano is fired up and, and there's magma uh, at the surface um, that could be exploding violently and producing ash clouds or it could be flowing over the ground more in a more benign way as lava flows, you know, then, then we talk about an eruption. Sure. OK. Yeah, because I went to I went to Vesuvius and is that considered active or is that a. That, that, yeah, so Vesu Vesuvius, the, the last eruption of Vesuvius was in 1944. And uh, so that that's a volcano, we would consider it an active volcano. It's very quiet at the moment, but uh, it's very carefully monitored because it's in a very populous part of Italy. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely in, in the realms of a volcano that, that uh, we would expect to come back to life again at some point in the future. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting going through all like the ancient artifacts and seeing all the all the stuff at the at the site, like the historical site um, and kind of going back to what you were saying before about like the living day to day and seeing this like massive volcano and this kind of reverential love for it and fear for it at the same time. Like I imagine that's that's similar to people in Hawaii um, now, you know, that's, they very clearly have kind of this spiritual, uh, air to them. Um, so it's, it is just really fascinating and it, and it's interesting to see how it permeates through culture. So that's really all, that's really all I had, um, for now. Uh, I kind of, I like to end this podcast with a definition of adventure because it takes so many forms. And as someone who's a researcher, who's forced to go out on these adventures. It's interesting to hear your perspective. So how do you personally define adventure? I've never tried to define it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I guess uh, it's, it's going out there. Um, I mean, for me, adventure is, is, uh, is going beyond the ordinary. Um, and, and for me, adventure has led me to um, other parts of the world. Uh, it's led me to Antarctica, it's led me to North Korea uh, and Hawaii and so on. And uh, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of semi-nomadic. I like being on the move. I like being in deserts. I like um, the physical challenge of, of uh, environments that are a bit harsh for a human being, the, the extreme cold in Antarctica or, or the, the desert heat in, in the Sahara. Uh, and, and I suppose it's... Um, it's also that uh, you know, with adventure, you don't you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you don't know. Sometimes you don't know where you're going to be sleeping tonight because you've got to, just got a tent on your on your uh, in your backpack, and uh, you're going to stop traveling when when you find a suitable place to pitch it. Uh, so um, uh, that for me is advent my kind of adventure. But you know, there's an adventure as well in. Um, I, I collect data in the field. Uh, I collect a lot of data, and I, I might collect, you know, millions of these spectra in 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 the space of a few weeks. Okay, in some ways, my adventure has just begun uh, because now I'm going to spend months, if not some years, uh, number crunching, analyzing those data, and trying to figure out what what they mean. 
And that, that's a kind of adventure in itself. Okay, it's, it's done uh, from right where I'm sitting right now in front of my, uh, my computer uh, and, um, you know, some spreadsheets and playing with the math and so on. Uh, so I, th I think it's, you know, adventure is what's, what's taking you, um, you know, somewhere where you don't know where it's going to lead. Um, going, going to the supermarket's not really an adventure, I don't think, but uh, <laughs> going into the unknown. Perfect. Dr. Oppenheimer, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and everyone should go check out his, his book, Mountains of Fire, The Menace, Meaning, and Magic of Volcanoes. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. No, well, thanks so much for having, having me on. I, I tried to get, uh, I said I'd, I'd really like to get some Mount St. Helens ash embedded in the cover of the book. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, but I think it's got some little flecks in there that kind of simulate yeah. it. I thought, you know, it'd be good to have some of the real stuff. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Of course. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time.